You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of December 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up... Ukraine is a crippled country, really. It can't progress in many ways. So maybe it's time to take a step back and see, you know, what's in it for Russia as well. My guests Enrico Franceschini and Adam Labor are here to discuss the first meeting between Vladimir Putin and Volodymyr Zelensky as the sides try to find a path towards peace in the ongoing war in eastern Ukraine. We'll also be discussing some of the day's other news, including a move by police in Britain to offer free counter-terrorism training to the public, and a plan by the city of Austin to ban cars from a central neighbourhood in hopes of increasing foot traffic. Plus... It's worth remembering that just as television didn't begin with Netflix and House of Cards... Audio didn't begin with NPR's Serial. We'll find out why it's taken until 2019 for the Pulitzer Prize to add a category for radio. I'm Ben Rylan. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the program. I'm joined today in the studio by the journalist and author Adam Labor and by Enrico Franceschini, who's the London correspondent for La Repubblica. We'll start in Paris, where talks are due to commence between the leaders of Russia and Ukraine. It'll be the first time Volodymyr Zelensky has come face to face with Vladimir Putin, and it comes after five and a half years of deadly fighting in the east of Ukraine. Now, Zelensky's approach has been one of consultations with Russia. But Moscow's involvement in Ukraine is essentially an invasion. Will talks like this ever be enough? Well, it's very hard to look at it in some ways as, as anything else, as, as, as anything other than an invasion, although it's not actual Russian state forces that have occupied eastern Ukraine. It's pretty clear that those paramilitaries are armed and funded by Russia, and some people say that they're being directed by Russia as well. And there's also the question of the Crimea, which was simply been chopped off from Ukraine and annexed by Russia, although Russia says it was theirs in the first place and Ukraine only got it in the 1950s anyway. But the point is, how is this going to play out in the longer term? I think Russia's aim with Ukraine is is to have a kind of frozen conflict because what happens with a frozen conflict is it stops Ukraine integrating into NATO. Uh, it's unlikely that it's ever going to join NATO, but there, there could still be some closer relations with NATO, which Russia considers pretty outrageous as Ukraine is right. Uh, in its sphere of influence and is it you know is is its underbelly and it also prevents ukraine integrating further into the eu so the question is why would russia want to end this now i mean maybe the war is becoming too onerous for russia there's a sense perhaps that russia's got what it's wanted that ukraine is a is a crippled country really it can't progress in many ways uh, further into the international system while this goes on so maybe it's time to take a step back and see you know what's in it for russia as well. Mm. Uh, Enrico, Zelensky has already had to uh, give plenty of concessions to Russia before these talks could even take place. And having some sort of mediating process with Russia was a key part of his election in the first place. It's very important politically and domestically for this to take place, for there to be some progress with Russia uh, for Zelensky. Uh, needless to say, there's plenty of fury amongst Ukrainians surrounding some of what's taken place before these talks have even started. I mean, from Zelensky, 
Zelensky's perspective, uh, does he really have any choice but to give some degree of concession to Russia just to get these uh, people around the table? I think it does. And I think uh, uh, we have to remember that uh, Ukraine is a very complex situation because uh, it's true, of course, they have the right to determination, to, to choose their own path, to do what they want. But uh, as, as Adam uh, um, reminded us, uh, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union for a long time. 40% of the population is ethnically Russian. Let's try to, I mean, uh, it's... Vladimir Putin is indefensible for many reasons, and he definitely invaded Ukraine. But let's imagine that something like that happened to the United States or the UK or Italy, where you have a country on your borders that has been part of your own country for uh, centuries, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, it becomes uh, allied with your potential enemy. And there, there are uh, almost half of the population belongs, speaks your language, has the roots, the same roots uh, as you have. It's not uh, so difficult to understand that uh, Russia has a special interest in Ukraine and Crimea also. Let's remember, to, for people who don't know what happened with Crimea, uh, Crimea was given as a gift to uh, Ukraine from Russia in the 50s. It was like if uh, England, like the UK, decided that Cornwall was part of Wales. We give it to because we are all part of the UK anyway. And then one day Wales becomes independent and says, no, no, Cornwall stays with us. And uh, the English people in Cornwall say, but we have a big attachment to England. We want to feel English, not Wales. So it's a very complex issue. There's a huge amount of issues still to be resolved from the end of the Soviet Union, and this is probably the most crucial one. Mm. Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the question of Crimea is one thing, but I mean, uh, one suspects that the majority of discussions that will be taking place around this table will be about the ongoing situation uh, in the east of Ukraine. And it's important to remember the scale of this conflict as well. More than 13,000 people are dead. Millions have been displaced. Uh, and uh, of course, a large part of Zelensky's political appeal is uh, that he's been talking of toning down some of the confrontational language and taking a humanitarian approach. Uh, but let's remember, uh, Adam, you mentioned earlier the uh, NATO. Emmanuel Macron will be part of these talks that are taking place. Now, he's recently said that Russia is not a common enemy of NATO, amongst some other statements as well. Do you think he'll be a, a reassuring presence at the table? Well, Macron has very interesting views on NATO. I mean, he recently said it was brain dead. So it's not really clear what Macron thinks NATO should be doing. But I think it's correct that you shouldn't regard Russia as a common enemy. I mean, Russia is there. We're not, we're not fighting Russia. We have to find a means of finding a modus vivendi with Russia. At the same time, even though it's true that Ukraine is part of Russia's historic sphere of influence, you know, and Kiev has uh, historically got huge Russian historical and uh, strong history and culture, uh, it, it is Russia that's been the aggressor in this sense, moving these paramilitary troops into Ukraine. So there are other ways to bring a country back into your sphere of influence other than the military one. So it's quite complex. But what interests me is why would Russia want to do this at the moment? Because there's no prospect really of Ukraine ever taking those territories back again without massive help from the West, which simply hasn't materialised. I mean, my feeling watching this from, from this part of the world is 
is that we saw the massive uprising that led to the Euromaidan revolution in 2014. That was largely led by young people, and a lot of these people, while yes, all of this talk of history at the table here today is true, historically there are these relationships and, and Russia had this involvement in Ukraine, these young people haven't grown up with this sort of reality. It, from their perspective, this is simply an invasion, regardless of what country belonged to which. This is a foreign country that has come into Ukraine and has changed their, their way of life. It is true, but uh, for example, I think it's important that uh, talks take place in Paris and that Macron is trying to mediate somehow between the two countries because Europe is the key in, in this uh, conflict. Europe should try to uh, negotiate a, a way out that is not military, that is not uh, with, with blood, as we have seen uh, so, so many uh, deaths and, and people have to be moving out of that area. And, and it should be possible because uh, definitely Russia is the aggressor, but uh, we have had aggression from Russians in the past as well when there was not a autocratic system like today but it was a full-fledged dictatorship and the West was able to negotiate and resolve some of the issues with the Soviet Union they should find a way now in Ukraine as well. Enrico Franceschini and Adam Labor there we'll be back in just a moment but first here's Monocle's Daniel Bage with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thank you, Ben. The World Anti-Doping Agency has banned Russia from competing in all major sporting events for four years. The Russian flag and anthem will be banned from events including the Tokyo 2020 Olympics and football's 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Athletes who can prove they are clean and are untainted by the doping scandal will be allowed to compete under a neutral flag. At least five people have died and several more are unaccounted for following the eruption of a volcano in New Zealand. Around 50 tourists were walking near the White Island crater when it erupted. 23 people have been rescued, but police warn the number of fatalities is likely to rise. Authorities say no further signs of life have been seen on the island. And Sana Marin will become the world's youngest prime minister when she is sworn in as the head of Finland's coalition government later this week. The 34-year-old will lead a center-left coalition of five parties, all headed by women. Those are some of the headlines we're following today. Now back to you, Ben. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Ben Ryland here with Enrico Franceschini and Adam Labor. Back home to the United Kingdom now, where members of the public are being offered counter-terrorism training for free. The online tutorials aim to educate people on how to react in the case of a terrorist incident. This, of course, has been made available in the past to staff who work at busy public areas such as shopping centres. It's now being offered to anyone. Adam, is this a good idea? I think it's a very good idea. I think it's incredibly sad that we have to even be talking about this. And a few years ago, I think before 9-11, it would have been pretty unimaginable that the average person living in a place like London or Manchester has to consider how to, you know, in effect, to be a first responder to a terrorist act because that's normally the province of extremely highly trained professionals. On the other hand, this is the world in which we live. Um, I remember I was on the tube the other day in London and I saw a new poster up and it showed a woman looking at a CCTV camera and it said, is she surveilling the surveillance? You know, call the British Transport Police if you see something suspicious. And I thought that was incredible, really, because 
it's possible that she is but what are we at this stage now as if i or someone else glances at a cctv camera in the tube someone might think i'm surveilling it um so it's very sad but that's where we are and i think it's actually an extremely good idea I think it's a good idea for many reasons. Firstly, because there is this threat. So any professional advice that we can get on how to be more aware and how to respond to it under pressure and in a crisis is extremely good because people's instinct is to freeze and is not to do anything and not to know what to do. So that's so in that in that sense, I think, you know, it's something very, very positive although very sad. Mm, very sad. Uh, and Enrico, we can look at this for, on one hand uh, in a similar way to first aid, uh, where you should know what to do in, in case uh, someone cuts themselves or collapses in public. Sensible, practical uh, information. However, the flip side is that sometimes certain kinds of precautions can lead to a sense of people feeling less safe. Now, whether whether we feel safe is often disconnected to whether we are actually safe or not. But there is this sense that whenever something like we've seen recently at, at, in the, the attack that took place at London Bridge and the aftermath that comes after that and all of the talk about how we should keep ourselves safe, that can lead to people feeling quite differently about their cities and, and their everyday environment. I kind of agree because uh, we have to keep things in perspective, in my view. I mean, of of course, in theory, there is nothing wrong with learning a few facts of what to do uh, in case of the re- you're near a terrorist attack. But uh, we have the police and the secret services to protect us. And I think we have to remember the professionals should do it mostly. And, we, and society should not. Is the same thing as we don't want vigilantes to go in the streets, uh, you know, next to the police to say, no, we'll keep order. Uh, you don't want to feel personally responsible to learn how to react uh, to terrorist attack. But not only that, I'm afraid that these kind of programs, as you pointed out, can create in the public the sense that there is this huge, terrible threat against all of us. First of all, uh, you know, 3,000 people died in 2011 attack uh, against New York. 50,000 people die every year in a car accident in the United States. So we have to keep the, the proportion of that. And, and also remember, we talk now a lot about the terrorist threat from Al-Qaeda or ISIS. This country has had uh, 30 years of uh, terrorist threat from uh, the IRA and, uh, uh, you know, was able to survive that. And that threat in my view, was much worse than the threat we have now. Mm. Uh, Police say that this decision is actually not related to the recent attack that I mentioned that took place at London Bridge. Uh, There is this sense, however, that, uh, as I I mentioned earlier, Adam, whenever an attack like that takes place, it does make us reassess just how safe we are. Do you think that, as you were sort of alluding to earlier, that this is essentially the new normal and that maybe maybe we are all going to have to march into the future with some degree of knowledge on how to react in a, in a case like this. Yeah, I think it is the new normal. It doesn't mean that you have to walk around in a state of full alert all the time watching out for potential terrorists. But this, I think, is probably not going to go away. And we just all should be a bit sharper. And one of the things, why, one of the reasons why I think this is quite a good idea is that people are zoned out nowadays it's completely zoned out on their phones we're just walking here today i saw a woman crossing the road doing a facetime call looking at the screen okay the traffic was in her favor but really she had no idea what was going on around her anyone could have grabbed that phone and that's not a way to live in a city you know we cannot zone out on our phones all the time and this is kind of connected to that between being aware of what's going on and having some situational awareness and also the whole question of being an active citizen and 
yeah, you raise some really interesting questions. What is our responsibility as a citizen? Is it really my job to watch out for people? Well, perhaps it is, actually, to some extent. As I say... Is there a risk of that line being a little bit blurred? Though, yeah, the however? problem is, what if I get it wrong? Mm. No, I don't have the skills well, we, to, in, to On one hand, we should call. be leaving it up to the experts at the same time yes. as well, shouldn't we? Because uh, I looked at this course, it's 45 minutes online. So, okay, I'm sure I can learn some things in 45 minutes online. But what if I think, oh, now I'm the expert and I make a wrong call? You know, it's, it's very tricky. But I think in a way it's good that this conversation is happening and, and there's different options being put forward as to how we can go forward. Uh, I mean, children in Japan learn how to react in the case of an earthquake, don't they? And I know back home in, in Australia, where I'm from, uh, citizens, certainly in parts of, of the country that are at risk of bushfires in the hotter months, are taught how to uh, react in in case of a, a quite a large bushfire. How do you uh, react? What do you have to do? Well, it's, it takes a lot of weeks of preparation, to, to be honest. And it also, uh, it, it also means that you need to, if you're going to leave your property, you need to leave it well in advance. It's very, very unsafe to wait until the threat of fire is right there in front of you and then to get up and leave. That's one of the most dangerous things you can possibly do. Because of the education that I went through, that's been drilled into me. So I know if there's a bushfire coming, get out now. Don't wait until you can you can smell the smoke. Um, I mean, it, it does... it. It does feel a bit strange to consider terrorism as something that is uniquely something that threatens us here in London, but it, it is the case, it is the reality that we're living in, Enrico. Yeah, it, it is, but also to make another example, in London we are all threatened by this uh, epidemic number of attacks with knives, right? I mean, yes, uh, most, which, most which of, is more, more Most of the victims perhaps are unfortunately young people who are members of, of gangs, but still, I think there, are, there have been in the last year about 100 people died with knives in London much more than were killed by terrorism, right? Mm. So, of course, uh, when I speak with my son, I always tell him, be aware where you are, you know, look at the people, don't, uh, you know, don't, don't be confrontational if someone, you know, hurts you on the, on the mm. street by accident. In the same way, I understand you must keep your eyes open for uh, terrorism and know how to react in case of an attack. But uh, again, let's not put things out of proportion. Let's remember there are many more, many other threats, not just terrorism. And the others might be bigger, actually. Mm, absolutely. I, Enrico, I couldn't agree more. If you're living in a part of London that is uh, suffering at the moment with the spate of knife crimes that are happening in this city, I can absolutely assure you that, that counter-terrorism, while being on your mind, certainly won't be at the front of your mind. You'll have certain, uh, lots of other issues to deal with. Uh, finally, before we wrap up today, uh, to Austin, the booming Texas city that's known for its live music and nightlife. Now, it just has become the latest place to trial a pedestrian-only zone in its city centre. Rainy Street was transformed at the weekend into a bustling people-only promenade, with cars sidelined in favour of crowds enjoying the Strip's famous bars, restaurants and, no doubt, some Christmas shopping too. Now, this is part of a pilot program. It'll be running every evening on Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays until March. Enrico, do you think it's a wise move? I think it's a great idea. I think pedestrian streets, pedestrian malls work uh, everywhere. I remember in my hometown in Italy of Bologna when they, they started this kind of programs, all the all the shopkeepers are saying, ah, we will have less business, people will not be able to come park the car and then buy something, there will be less people in the centre of town. And instead, it was the opposite. More people came. Sometimes the streets are packed by, by uh, people who enjoy taking a walk and stroll and, and buy uh, or go to a restaurant. So I think it's a good idea. 
I completely agree. Again, I'm going to call back to something from at home, but in in a particular part of Melbourne, we've been existing for decades with a pedestrian-only zone, and it's only led to more and more business in that part of the city. As Enrico says, uh, we've got plenty of examples around the world that have been successful. Uh, One of the most obvious ones being Times Square in New York uh, was made pedestrian-only about a decade ago, and it's, it's doing absolutely bumper business. Adam... It seems something that certainly here in London we're just not ready to jump on with. Uh, Oxford Street, the busiest shopping strip in Europe, apparently. Yeah, Oxford Street, I think, would be a prime candidate for this. They've been trying it for years. They just can't get it across the line. I don't know why that that doesn't happen. Because, I mean, in any case, only buses and taxis can drive down Oxford Street anyway. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when somewhere's pedestrianised, it brings it alive. There's no question of it. When I lived in Budapest... You would see streets and squares that were cut off for festivals and cultural events for a day or half a day. And the transformation was incredible. You know, there'd be live music, there'd be cafes, there'd be street food. It's something that touches all of us in us because we're suddenly much more organically connected to the city. Instead of just driving around in our little metal boxes, we're walking, we're talking, we're strolling. What you do in a pedestrian place is you stroll. As Enrico says, you have a chance encounter. You see a friend, you grab a coffee, you try something new, you want into a bookshop. The cities should be designed with plenty of places to stroll. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great what... French word, flaneur. No, flaneur. Exactly. Yeah, you're going for a walk just to sort of have a walk for the sake of it and it's a fabulous thing to uh, do. Yeah. I was saying, let's not forget the biggest pedestrian um, mall of the world, Venice, where there are no cars at all. But then there, the problem is too much water. Yeah, too ma- there's too many flaneurs in Venice. That's the problem. Enrico Franceschini and Adam Labor, thank you. In a moment, we'll hear a little bit more about a new Pulitzer Prize category. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View on Monocle 24. I'm Ben Rylan. Finally today, a view from our editorial floor. A new Pulitzer Prize category proves that we're living in a golden era of audio. For over a century, the Pulitzer Prize has celebrated the great and good in the liberal arts. It awards music, literature, poetry and photography. But the Pulitzer's real meat and potatoes has always been journalism. That it's an American prize is entirely appropriate. It's the Americans, after all, who took a low-brow medium and made it high. Sure, the boozy lunches of Fleet Street, foreign wars, hungry hacks and Chesterfields have a beguiling glamour, but it took the Americans to make the business of reporting not just sexy, but literature. This process of embetterment, to use an Americanism, represents the country's relationship with media generally. In the absence of any particular historical tradition, the US has enthusiastically made the best out of whatever medium crosses its path, regardless of how vulgar it may seem to the snoots. The Pulitzer reflects this. Not only has it spent a century celebrating the best in American journalism, it has adapted with the times. Now it's brought a new discipline into the fold. The board has announced that it will be awarding a prize for the best in audio reporting. Once more, the US has blazed a trail in turning real life into compelling stories for an atrophying medium. But before we get too carried away, it's worth remembering that just as television didn't begin with Netflix and House of Cards, 
The show first appeared on British screens in 1990, albeit without Kevin Spacey. Audio didn't begin with NPR's serial. Radio, as our older readers will remember, is what we used to call podcasts, and it's very much alive and kicking. So chin chin to the Pulitzer's new prize and congrats to its future winners. But let's take a moment to remember the rich and ongoing tradition that is radio and tune in while we're about it. You already know where to go. Monocle.com slash radio. That was Monocle's Augustin Machalari. And that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bage and researched by Giacomo Harper. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture with Robert Bound. Now this week, Rob and his festive music critics are reviewing 2019's best and worst of the Christmas records. Uh, that's coming up at 2000. Do tune in. Monocle's House View is back at the very same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Ben Ryland. Bye-bye.